I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, why what's happening on college campuses might reflect a change in culture. It's a desire to protect by attacking, by demonizing, by shouting people down, and even on a few occasions by physical violence to prevent people from speaking. Then how a fraudulent doctor and a Coney Island sideshow help save babies' lives. Over time, all the hospitals in the New York metro area and near Atlantic City were actually sending their premature patients to the sideshow because they didn't have the equipment to save these children. And finally, a few reasons why termites are not completely terrible. Their ability to blanket landscapes and to create these hot spots of fertility all over them makes those landscapes much more resilient to drought. That's all coming up on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. In March of 2017, Allison Stanger got a concussion, which wouldn't have gotten widespread attention except for the way in which she got it. Stanger, up to that time, was probably best known for her scholarly work on foreign policy and diplomacy. But last year, she achieved a new level of fame, and it happened in a way she never could have imagined. I didn't think anything was going to happen. I'd never seen anything like this in my life. I mean, before I walked out the door uh, to where we were confronted with the crowd that injured me, I was saying to someone, you know, I left my computer in the car, so why don't I go separately and I'll go get my car and meet you at the dinner? I had no clue that was going to happen. Stanger had been asked by a student group to interview a fellow political scientist, a man named Charles Murray, who is visiting the college where she's a professor, Middlebury. But even before Murray arrived, it was clear there was serious opposition to having him speak. Murray is often considered a conservative or a libertarian author. Some, including many on Middlebury's campus, believe his work is racist. And on the night of their scheduled discussion, Allison Stanger and Charles Murray were met with rowdy protests. The fact of the matter is I don't really remember um, much of it. But we were taken out of the, the, um, the hall and confronted this mob of angry people, some of whom were in masks. And they were shoving and jostling. They were, their target was Charles Murray. And I was a little bit behind him. And it kind of intensified. It looked like he was going to fall to the ground. And he's, he's at the time, was a 74-year-old man. So I just sort of did what any decent human being would do when you see a 74-year-old man on the verge of falling to the ground. I grabbed him by the arm. So I took his arm, and when I did that, that's when it all turned on me. After the confrontation, as she explained last year on C-SPAN, Sanger thought she was fine. But she wasn't. She had a concussion. She had trouble driving, trouble thinking. What happened at Middlebury quickly made headlines, which seemed to shock Stanger, even when she looked back at what had happened months later. My students know I'm a Democrat. I think it's even all the more important to engage with someone like Charles Murray precisely because it shows them that I believe in a free and fair exchange of views in my classroom, which you have to have for liberal education to take place. But the story of why the Murray protest occurred at Middlebury tells us a lot about how culture is changing. It brings into play new dynamics on college campuses, the evolution of parenting, and our current political environment. 
Jonathan Haidt is a psychologist specializing in morality. He's a co-author of the new book, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation of Kids for Failure. And in it, he explains his view of how and why we're undergoing this evolution. He's also a professor at NYU's Stern School of Business. John, welcome. Thank you, Kara. Good to be here with you. So uh, you teach on a college campus, just like Allison uh, Sanger does. Do you remember the first time that you started to think about, you know, how culture was changing and first started to think like, wow, I I perceive something different here in terms of like people being very sensitive to stuff that was going on or, um, you know, maybe being, at least in your view, kind of overly willing to shame people for, for their beliefs. Yes, it it all started in the 2013 to 2014 academic year when I taught things I've been teaching for a long time and students started objecting and writing to the dean to complain about things that I said or images I showed in my lectures. Like I I talked about the Milgram experiment where people seemed to be willing to shock someone to death and I used it to explain how the Nazis could have done what they did and a student thought that I was somehow pardoning the Nazis and she wrote to the dean. Hmm. I showed an image to illustrate weakness of the will. I showed an image from the Odyssey uh, in which Ulysses ties himself to the mast and uh, the, the sirens are climbing up on the ship and since sirens are topless, as they traditionally were. A student objected and thought that this was sexist of me to to show a 19th century painting. So just strange stuff started happening in that academic year. So when Greg Lukianoff came to me that summer, the following summer, and said, John, strange stuff is happening, and I have a theory about why, I said, oh, my God, this makes sense. This is the best idea I've heard in a long time. And and Greg Lukianoff is your co-author, is the co-author of this book and a, a First Amendment lawyer. Right. That's right. And he's the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. And the whole idea for the book was his. I just came along for the psychology. What's interesting, too, is that the idea of free speech on campus being a lightning rod is not new. So, like, if you go back to the 1960s at Berkeley, very famously, right, there was a lot of discussion about that free speech should be allowed and that the administration was trying to shut it down. But... As you point out, the script has flipped here because it used to be that students were really annoyed that the administration was trying to clamp down on free speech. And now it is much more students who are saying this person should really not come speak on campus. That's not appropriate. Like they are the people saying, I don't know if everything should be allowed to be said on campus. Well, that's right. And so that's what that's what's new. I mean, as you say, there are cycles of, of political protest on campus. And some people say, well, student protest is normal. And to some extent it is. But what's new in this cycle uh, there was another cycle in between it in the late 80s, early 90s. There was another cycle of, sort of you know, what the right started calling the political correctness madness. What's new in this cycle is the idea that students are fragile, that they can be damaged by words, that words are violence. And even though it isn't usually students saying, I am damaged, I am traumatized if Charles Murray speaks, it's usually students saying, my friends will be, members of certain groups will be. So that's why we called it vindictive protectiveness, because it is, it is in some ways morally motivated. It is a desire to protect, but it's a desire to protect by attacking, by demonizing, by shouting people down, and even on a few occasions by physical violence to prevent people from speaking. 
Do you think that what has changed on college campuses has to do with the campuses themselves? But people aren't, uh, you know, people don't spend very long in college, right? Um, is it because people are arriving to college as different people than they were 10 or 20 years ago? Or is it because something happens to them in the short time that they're at college uh, that changes them? So you have to break the problem into several several different um, one major reason uh, is because we basically clamped down on play. We stopped letting kids play independently in the 1990s, roughly. Um, kids, you, you know, anybody who, who grew up uh, before the 1990s or late 80s spent a lot of time outside with their friends unsupervised. So they had a lot of practice in play and negotiation and what, what do you do if someone gets hurt? But in part because of a huge overreaction to the crime wave and for a variety of other reasons, just as the crime wave was ending in the 1990s, America developed a new norm that if a kid is found outside and there's no adult, the parents can be arrested. Now, it doesn't happen that often, but it happens and enough to scare the heck out of, out of parents. So you can't, you know, kids can't go play in a park anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, and because they're always supervised, they don't cultivate the skills of problem uh, negotiation that they used to have. So there are a variety, for a variety of reasons, the kids coming into college have been basically overprotected. It's not their fault. It's, it's the grown-ups' fault. So that's half the story. Okay. Um, so the other half, oh, actually, okay, let's, let's bring it to three. All right. Okay. What's happening to the kids, there's what's right. happening to the campuses, and then there's what's happening to the country. Okay. On the country, uh, we've had rising polarization. The left and the right have always disliked each other, mm -hmm. but it was actually pretty mild in the 70s and into the 80s. It's only in the 90s that the two parties become really uh, sorted into a, a liberal party and a conservative party. And once the parties are relatively pure politically, the people in them really hate the other side a lot more. And of course, the, the spark, you know, one of the sparks um, is the Black Lives Matter uh, um, movement, which of course was the, the spark being those horrible videos that we all saw. So you have renewed, very passionate student activism um, coming in the wake of those videos in, you know, in 2014, uh, plus or minus. Um, onto a campus that is much more politically uh, um, active and passionate in a country that's much more divided with students who don't have as much practice uh, dealing with conflict. And boom, everything blows up in the fall of 2015 at Halloween. Okay, so tell me uh, what happened at Halloween and how did that connect to this theory that, as you were talking about, uh, you were developing about how culture was changing? Um, Greg and I wrote an article about what we thought was going on on campus and how campuses were teaching some uh, very bad ideas. And that article came out in August of 2015, before there were any real student protests. And then in the fall of 2015, there's a wave of, of student protests beginning at uh, the University of Missouri and then Yale. Um, and it's at Yale especially there, uh, where there was guidance over – the university was telling students how they should dress for Halloween. Yes, and and I a professor that. wrote wrote a, yes. wrote a very – you know, she's a developmental psychologist, and she wrote a letter to her students, really treating them as adults and saying, well, let's think about this. You know, can we do this for ourselves? Should we be getting this guidance? Um, and some students got very upset, and it blew up. And the guidance was, I think the guidance was essentially, don't wear any Halloween costumes that could be construed as, it was from the university, from Yale, don't wear Halloween costumes that could 
be construed as offensive to other people, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. And this is happening at a lot of schools. There's just increasing guidance and control. And so Erica Christakis, who's a developmental psychologist with a wonderful book called The Importance of Being Little, um, she's already concerned about how we've been depriving kids of autonomy. We don't let them make decisions. We don't let them handle their own affairs. We're so intrusive. We're overprotective. And here she is at Yale. At Yale, the deans, the administrators are overprotecting, guiding, telling them, here's how you can have relationships. Here's how you can talk. Here's, you know. So she said, oh, my God, enough is enough. So she writes this letter, and it's available online. It's a, it's a very thoughtful letter. And it's fine if students disagree with it. They could easily have argued against it. But this is, the, this is a hallmark of the new culture. And again, this is not about most kids. Most kids are normal, the same as they've ever been. Mm-hmm. But what happens is if, if students are upset about something, the, there's a new dynamic where they are able to protest using social media to organize that they're able to protest and make demands in ways that no one is willing to stand up against. Or rather, I should say, people are reluctant to stand up. There's a fearfulness uh, to oppose them. So it's not that students have lost their minds. It's that certain forms of behavior that were completely unacceptable five years ago are now generally treated as acceptable. And it leads to a lot of intimidation and fear among students, faculty, and administrators. It seems like, and I'm going to get into some electoral politics here, um, but it seems like some of the controversies that started to bubble up in 2013, 2014, maybe even 2015, uh, kind of before the era of Donald Trump, or at least before the era of Donald Trump as a serious major uh, presidential candidate, that those things in some ways then seem to insert themselves into the election. So I'm going to play you a clip from... um, Trump when he was a candidate. This is from a Republican primary debate. And Megyn Kelly, who then worked at Fox News, talked about some of his comments about women, calling them slobs, calling them pigs. And she asked, does this sound like the temperament of the person that we should elect as president? Here is what Donald Trump said. I think the big problem this country has is being politically correct. I've been... I've been challenged by so many people, and I don't frankly have time for total political correctness. And to be honest with you, this country doesn't have time either. Jonathan Haidt, what's really striking there is that the phrase that got the applause is political correctness. And I just wonder how you see the story you're talking about predating Trump factoring in to the election itself. Sure. Well, going back to the wave of the wave of campus activism and uh, in the 19, early 1990s uh, with protests about the, the college curriculum and, and diversifying it. Back then is when the right-wing press and Fox News first began to gear up mm. uh, to fight political correctness on campus. So they've always, the right has always loved to hate universities, which have leaned left for you know most of the last century and into this one. And this is a staple. If you watch Fox News yeah. a lot— yeah. What happens on universities and like the disinvitation of the Steve Bannons mm-hmm. and the Ann Coulters, that is a that is meat and potatoes on Fox News. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So that's been going on for a long time. And, you know, it's not like it's without warrant. I mean, the clips they show are not faked. I mean, the, you know, the people on campus really do say some some foolish things. That's been going on a long time. And then what happened in the wake of all of the very a dramatic protest that began in the fall of 2015 is now there was all this really dramatic 
footage of students cursing out professors and doing all sorts of things that were great television. They were, you know, red meat for the right-wing anti-university group. So from a sociological perspective, is there a moral panic on the right? The answer is yes. And this is what people on the left are always saying. Oh, it's just a moral panic because you can point to a right-wing coverage and say, see, it's just ginned up by the press. But the thing is, the fact that there is a moral panic and the, the right is trying to amplify it doesn't mean that there isn't something going on, that there isn't a real problem. Um, I talk with a lot of university presidents and administrators, and they pretty much are all living in a state of fear. That is, as one said, universities are becoming ungovernable. Uh, That's for a variety of reasons. It's not just the the new dynamic of the students. But part of it is that, that blips can happen over anything, just uh, the kind of food served in the dining hall, a joke that someone tells. So things are changing not on all campuses, but on many. And the fact that there is a moral panic on the right does not mean that there is also not a lot going on that is making people feel censored or shut up. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Jonathan Haidt. He's a professor of ethical leadership at NYU's Business School and a co-author of The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. Um, You argue that speakers should not be invited to campus if, like, all they really want to do is provoke a reaction, if all they want to do is humiliate the university. I just wonder what the yardstick is. Like, should anybody be able to come to campus and say pretty much anything? Is there any legitimacy to to the idea that, gee, I don't really know that I want this person to come speak on campus? Um, I personally don't think so. I think Greg might give a different answer. He He's more focused on free speech and the First Amendment. The way I think about this is as a professor and a researcher, what we do on campus requires certain norms that are different from the public square. And we have to keep ourselves free from orthodoxy. Our work suffers if we see ourselves as activists who know the conclusion in advance and are just trying to prove it. So my focus is on how do we create the special conditions under which people who are very different from each other, we we value diversity for a reason, how can we create the very special conditions under which diverse people can come together and each one is biased, each one engages in post hoc reasoning, each one reasons based on emotions, but magically, if we get things right, magically we cancel out each other's confirmation biases, we challenge each other, and if we have norms of civility and a sense of community, Almost by magic, truth emerges where nobody might have had it before. So what happens? You know, are things getting hotter in universities? Are things changing? Just we've seen all this controversy. I just wonder what comes of it. So what I've noticed in the last year, um, what I've noticed from the beginning in 2015 with the protests, is that leadership at universities was very weak. The university leaders often... A good leader would say, I acknowledge your concerns, you're right, let's talk. On the other hand, you should not be cursing out professors, you should not be giving me a list of uh, uh, an ultimatum with a threat, Mm -hmm. that's not how we do things here. Uh, And to his credit, the president of Oberlin actually did that, and then of course the students backed down and they met with him at office hours or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, But that was very rare. Almost always the presidents of universities said, oh my God, we're so sorry, you're right, everything you say about a university is right, you know, here's $50 million for more diversity training. Now, diversity training doesn't 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 well as far as we can tell it's not there's not a lot of evidence that it has the effects it's supposed to have so the university leadership is doing what corporate leadership does namely they'll they'll do things for CYA they'll do things for mm-hmm. to show that they're doing something but not it's not something that's likely to actually help the problem so that's how things played out the first year or two 
But what I'm seeing now is that whenever I talk to a dean of any sort, it's clear, wow, their job has gotten a lot harder in the last year or two. And they're looking for answers. They're looking for help. And so um, I think there's a common understanding now that we have to address both the, the demands and the requests for better inclusion of, of racial and other minorities. We have to address that and the, the speech issues, the freedom of inquiry issues. We have to address them all at the same time. Otherwise, we have this sort of a, a, a one element of the left saying, no, it's all about racism and inclusion. And we have one element of the right or some Republican students saying, no, no, it's all about free speech. And that's just, you know, if you, pit, if, if you think that those two are incompatible or opposites, then it, it's just eternal. I mean, we're in big trouble. So I, I think there's a, an increased willingness to work on all the problems at the same time and recognize that we have a culture problem in many universities. Jonathan Haidt is a professor at NYU's Stern School of Business, and he's the co-author of the new book, The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure. John, thank you so much. My pleasure, Kara. Thanks for having me. website, we've got C-SPAN's hour-long interview with Allison Stanger, the professor from Middlebury, who you heard from at the beginning, which is fascinating all the way through. We've also got more about the Yale Halloween incident, so you can read the primary documents for yourself. And we've assembled some op-eds and essays of people who do not diagnose the situation in the same way as Jonathan Haidt. That's all at innovationhub.org. History is full of frauds who convinced other people they were great. And history is full of truly great men and women whose work was passed over because they were unable to convince pretty much anybody of anything. But rarely do the two categories merge. Rarely is a great man also a fraud. And rarely is a fraud truly a great man. But most people aren't Martin Cooney, who changed American medicine while entertaining the masses at sideshows on Coney Island and at World's Fairs. Don Raffle is the author of the new book, The Strange Case of Dr. Cooney, How a Mysterious European Showman Saved Thousands of American Babies. Don, thanks for being here. Oh, well, thank you. So this is such an amazing story that you tell. But just to dispense with the mystery right up front, how did this guy, Martin Cooney, which, of course, was not his real name, which we'll get to, um, but how did he save all those lives? Well, he placed premature babies in incubators in sideshows in the early 20th century. So people would pay a quarter to go look at two-pound babies in incubators right next door to the sword swallowers and the strippers on Coney Island, Atlantic City. But what's strange is there wasn't treatment available for these children in hospitals. So he was the one who was doing it. And over time, all the hospitals in the New York metro area and near Atlantic City were actually sending their premature patients to the sideshow because they didn't have the equipment to save these children. So the obvious question, why were incubators at Coney Island and not in, you know, wards in hospitals where, well, the babies were being born? I mean, why were people trekking these kids out to Coney Island? So the hospitals did start to try the incubators in kind of a scattershot way. But at that time, American hospitals were under-resourced. There was a high overall infant mortality rate. 
they really didn't have the skilled nursing that they needed because it's not just the incubator that you need. You need nurses who can feed a preemie. You need a very low nurse-to-patient ratio. You need conditions to be immaculate, and sometimes those hospitals weren't. Mm -hmm. So when they tried the incubators, they weren't getting great results. And the preemies weren't a priority, and they were just kind of like, you know what, this is not working. And increasingly, really tragically, there was a eugenics movement in this country. Babies that were this small were referred to as weaklings in the medical literature. And although eugenics didn't directly target preemies, it did target children who were born severely disabled. And preemies, people had the feeling of, well, will they ever be productive citizens? So... It's not as if there were no doctors really trying to save them. There were. And Martin Cooney had a great ally in Chicago and Dr. Julius Hess. But generally speaking, it was a culture that really didn't necessarily support treating these babies. Okay, so if that is the case, that people thought, well, you can't save these kids anyway, and plus maybe they're not really sort of maybe they don't really have the stuff to make it as an adult. Why did this guy who, as I said, was this weird combination of kind of like showman and doctor, cutting edge, but also like charging people money to come see these babies. Why did he care about them? Well, interestingly, so he grew up in a family of doctors and he wasn't a doctor himself. He said he was. He wasn't. But I think somehow this idea of being a healer was maybe part of his emotional makeup. And I think once he started doing this, how could you not? He saw that he was saving these children's lives and nobody else was coming for them. So over the years, parents would bring back the babies as toddlers to come see him. He, in time, was getting invitations to high school graduations, to weddings. And he was always saying he was trying to make propaganda for preemies. So he was trying to not only convince the medical establishment, but he wanted the public to really see and understand that these children could be saved. Mm-hmm. Where did he come across uh, or did he invent the technology? Because what he was really displaying was not just children, right? But he was just saying, here's a technology and it can save people's lives. How did he come across this technology? Uh, he said he invented it. He did not. Okay. Um, or his version <laughs> long of long list of things. Um, not a doctor, <laughs> not named Martin Cooney, didn't no, really invent no. incubators. Okay. <laughs> no. So the incubator as we know it was invented in the late 1800s in France by an engineer who was also not a doctor. And this engineer, in order to show off his fantastic new event invention, created shows where people could look at the babies and incubators. He ran it as a charity, and he brought it to the Berlin Industrial Exposition in 1896. And this was a splash. Huh. It attracted worldwide attention. The Germans referred to it as the child hatchery, and there were drinking hall songs about this before the show even opened. Whoa. Thousands of people came to look at this. And because this engineer kept saying, my new machine is so fantastic, it's practically automatic, it basically works by itself, you just put in the baby and voila. So a minute later... All the showmen were interested in this because why not? So Bailey of Barnum and Bailey had a show in London. The London Royal Aquarium had one. There were shows in France. There were shows in Italy. Martin Cooney, who was already in America by then, had somehow gotten wind of this 
and it first had a show in London with his backer. They went to London first. He came back to the United States as now the eminent Dr. Martin Arthur Cooney with a wide experience in Europe and started showing the incubators here. People were fascinated because they had never seen babies that small. They simply couldn't believe they were real. Mm-hmm. So the other showmen, this is not a toaster oven. It's a hell of a lot of work. So it's a system of care. It's the incubator, but it's also feeding tiny, tiny babies one drop of nutrition at a time, sometimes through the nose, because babies that small don't have a swallowing reflex. It's, so the other showmen were just like, you know, forget it. This is not worth it. They got out of it. He stayed in. And I think because whatever his initial motivation, I do think he really cared. Um, just to stay with the technology for a minute, what did incubators do for little premature babies that was so special um, that was not being done for them just, you know, in a hospital being put in a little, you know, a hospital bed or a cradle or whatever? It just created a warm, consistent temperature that could be tailored individually for each infant. Okay. So hospitals did try things like warm rooms. People at home sometimes put the baby in the shoebox and kept it near the oven. So that was the the warmth. A premature baby like that has very immature circulation, metabolism, they can't regulate their body temperature. So they could freeze to death in a room that's room temperature. And room temperature was also colder if you didn't have central heating. But as he kept saying, it was part of a system of care. And again, it was the nutrition. He insisted on breast milk only, which was expensive. He paid for wet nurses. The hospitals couldn't always afford that. Sometimes they had to use some other kind of formula that wasn't as good. He spared no expense in the treatment of these children, and he funded it by charging admission. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Dawn Raffle. She's the author of the book, The Strange Case of Dr. Cooney, How a Mysterious European Showman Saved Thousands of American Babies. So let's talk about his hucksterism. We've already come up with a list of things about him that are not true. His name is not his name, not a doctor, you know, didn't have this wide sort of medical experience, didn't invent the incubator. Who was this guy really? And why did he keep making things up about himself? I think he felt that he had to to stay in business. Well, first of all, his his name was Michael Cohn, and it wasn't terribly unusual for Jewish immigrants to change their names when they came here. Okay. And especially as a showman, you would have to do that at the time. There was a lot of anti-Semitism, and I think he just you know made that decision. I would judge him more harshly if the credentials were real. If he really were a doctor and he decided, you know what, I think— I'm just going to make a lot of money by running a show on Coney Island. Then I would view him as self-serving. He didn't have any other recourse. He couldn't practice in a hospital. And he never did anything illegal. He always had, quote, unquote, assistants who really had a medical license. So he would say, can you sign this paperwork for the health department for me? If Hmm. a death certificate had to be signed, he would say, oh, you know, can you sign that? He was sort of vague about it with the people who worked for him. But I think that he felt he needed the credentials if he was going to stay in business. So over time, the credentials became increasingly embroidered. If you look at the very, very early, like 1900, 
he wasn't really making those claims. They came later. Hmm. If he wanted to be a doctor, is it crazy to ask why didn't he go to medical school and just be a doctor? You know, I think he was already in this. He was 30 when he got started. His wife was a registered nurse. His daughter became a registered nurse. And then at that point, if you're a public figure and then you go to medical school, I don't know how (laughs) you do that. Right. He just felt like he couldn't go backwards. Like, he already was who he was, and then things got a little fancier from there as time went on. I think so. And increasingly, you know, so for instance, the great French doctor whose hand-picked intern he said he was, well, that doctor was conveniently dead. And, you know, if you'll recall, not only was there no internet, there was no long-distance phone calls. There's nobody who's going to fact-check any of this stuff. Right. Right. Nobody was going on this guy's LinkedIn page to see if that seemed about right to them. No. And it he was sort of a reporter's dream. So if you're a feature reporter on a, on a deadline, you're just going to write down what he said. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to play a clip from one of Dr. Cooney's babies. Her name is Lucille Horn. And she, when she was 95 in 2015, she described how, as a baby, she ended up in an incubator. Here she is with her daughter, uh, Barbara, who's, who's interviewing her. My father said I was so tiny, he got only in his hand. I think I was only about two pounds, and I couldn't live on my own. I was too weak to survive. So the hospital didn't have anything to No, offer. they didn't have any hope for me at all. It was just, you died because you didn't belong in the world. Were parents hesitant to fork over their kids to a guy who had a sideshow, you know, showing babies versus like a hospital where the credentialed people were in general? What I have to say is you have to imagine the terror of these parents at the time having a child that small and what would happen. In the case of Lucille, and I spoke to her also a couple times in 2015, she told me that the doctor, she had a twin who died at birth, and the doctor actually said, well, don't rush to bury that one that died because you'll have to bury the other one too. So in that case, they were saying there's just nothing at all. Increasingly, they were saying, if you want your child to survive, you need to go to this sideshow. Wow, that's amazing that that was coming out of hospitals, right? That that was like the medical advice. Yes, out of all of the major New York City hospitals, all of them were doing this. Wow. So a lot from Bellevue and Maimonides and every hospital that I was like, New York Hospital, they were saying that this is your choice. And I think the parents, yeah, they were upset about it. Some of them were very embarrassed. One woman who I interviewed, she and her brother were twins. They were born in 1937, premature. Their mother's hospital roommate had premature twins. And the doctor said to both mothers, this is already 1937. You have to go to Coney Island. The other mother said, no, I'm not sending my children to a freak show and having people pay admission. Those twins died. And the woman I spoke to, she and her brother are still alive. Hmm. So... Yeah. Sure, people were upset about it, but they felt like they didn't have a choice. What were people's reactions? Just just people who came in as spectators to see these little kids. Were people receptive? Did they think, this is weird that really little kids are being put on display? Like, my understanding is sometimes they'd have bows. I mean, this is a show. They're trying to get people in through the door. And I just wonder what people thought about this. 
You know, at one point I described it as medical grade cuteness. Yeah. <laughs> people loved seeing it. It it lived, you know, especially during World War One. people would come. There were people who would come every single week to look at the babies, almost like a reality TV show. They'd have a favorite baby they'd be rooting for, and maybe that baby went home and they'd pick another favorite baby. You know, there was a woman who came every single week for years. There were other people who were just fascinated the way you would be at a freak show that here's a human being that's this small. He was often next to, you know, people they called midgets, you know, and they had freak shows on the midway and all kinds of crazy things on the midway and people were curious. Mm -hmm. And that voyeuristic instinct has not gone away. People love watching reality television. It's just not on the midway anymore. I, I want to play one more clip from Lucille, the one-time baby who we heard from before, Lucille Horn, um, who, again, was 95 years old when she talked about being this little child in the Coney Island show that Dr. Cooney was was putting on. And, and here she is talking about later uh, meeting the doctor. He happened to be there at the time I went in. And I went over and I introduced myself to him. And there was a man standing in front of one of the incubators looking at his baby. And Dr. Cooney went over to him and he tapped him on the shoulder. And he said, look at this young lady. She's one of our babies. And that's how your baby's going to grow up. Don, what was your experience tracking down people who had been in these incubators? Were they hard to find? Just what was that like? They were hard to find because there weren't any records of this. Apparently, Dr. Cooney had his own records. Where they have gone, I don't know. I tried and tried to find anything like it, and I think they were just discarded. So I found myself, in some cases, just trying to find cases that were in the newspaper 100 years ago and writing to any family with that last name in that town, posting on World's Fair forums, posting on Facebook. And gradually, I found uh, some of these former babies, and I brought them together for a little reunion in 2015 because almost the first question everybody had for me is, have you met any others? We've never met anyone else. And so um, it was really fun to bring them together. And and. Of course, they had a lot of questions about him as well because he was mysterious. Right. And what's incredible is by that time, people must have been in their 80s and 90s. So clearly the incubators had worked. Like these people had lived very long, uh, successful lives. Yes. uh, The youngest of them are in their 70s now. And I also spoke to people whose parents were in those incubators, you know, who said, oh, you know, my mom had a wonderful life. She lived into her 80s or her 90s. Since the book has come out, I've heard from even more people who've said, you know, one person said to me, you know, my mom said she was born weighing two pounds and she was in a sideshow and nobody would believe it. I said, yeah, that that happened. (laughs) That was real. Don Raffle is the author of the new book, The Strange Case of Dr. Cooney, How a Mysterious European Showman Saved Thousands of American Babies. Don, thank you. This is great. Thank you. If you want to see pictures of Dr. Cooney and his Coney Island sideshow, plus more about Lucille Horn, the baby that Dr. Cooney saved and that you heard from, you can head to our website, innovationhub.org.
often find clues to how to solve the world's problems behind your bedroom wall. But sometimes you get lucky, and sometimes you get termites. Termites actually showed up in my house. I lived in Berkeley, California at the time. They showed up in my apartment. You know, then the carpenter came and pulled the wall off, and I could actually see that they'd been eating right behind my bed. Lisa Marginelli is a writer who spent years studying the economics of oil. Then about a decade ago, she wrote an article about termites. And unexpectedly, she kind of fell in love with them. Until, all of a sudden, they were in her house, which might seem like it would kind of dampen the romance. I thought that was hilarious. And then I realized that something had happened to me and that maybe I had some kind of, you know, termite Stockholm syndrome or something where I sympathized with those who had captured me. Marganelli's admiration for her captors, or at least for her invaders, turned out to be more logical than you'd think. Though it's hard to imagine anyone caring much about termites besides entomologists and exterminators. Marganelli's work had led her to believe that termites were going to be crucial in addressing one of the biggest challenges that faces humans, global warming. Oh, and I should say, just to get it out of the way, termite experts do not think of the bugs primarily as house munchers. There's more than 3,000 different species of termites, and only 27 of them are invasive and eat houses. So our, our perception of what termites is is a little bit off. Marganelli has now spent years hobnobbing with termite researchers, visiting labs. She's written a new book called Underbug, an obsessive tale of termites and technology. And she's pretty much gone all in on the whole termite thing. And then they asked me if I wanted to go on a termite safari. (laughs) And who says no to that, really? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So I joined them in Arizona um, hunting for termites out in the wild. And seeing the termites in the wild made me realize that this abstraction that we'd been talking about in the lab was really all around us and not an abstraction. It was really real. She discovered that if you pay attention to what termites are doing, you'll see that some are slacking off, some are working hard. You start to realize they've got memories and personalities and that thousands and millions of them working together almost act like a big brain. And termites aren't just hanging out in the desert or in grasslands. They don't just inhabit landscapes. They make them. And their power to change and heal dried up, written off spaces turns out to be kind of incredible, which is something we might want to keep in mind for the future. They're able to kind of blanket the land and then they tend it in a way and fertilize it with their own feces and change the way the water gets stored and gets used. So they make places much more resilient to droughts. Hmm. They make places for lizards and spiders and birds to come. And then because those are there, other predators come for them. And then eventually the amount of sort of nitrogen-rich greenery brings the elephants who chomp away at the tops of the leaves and the trees. And so you have this whole sort of thing, landscape, built from below. So termites, it sounds like they make landscapes I don't know if this is not the scientific term, but more lush, basically. Yeah, yeah. And in patterns. And those patterns seem to help make things support more diversity. You you talk about or you write about um, termites as a really interesting piece of global warming and like what 
termites are telling us right now about how the planet's changing. Um, do you want to talk about that? So it used to be thought that, that termites were causing global warming because they off-gassed so much methane, mm. which is one of the things that they do when they eat right. wood. They create methane. It's now thought that they don't create nearly so much and that a lot of it ends up getting sort of sequestered underground in their nests. They reflect some other things, though. Well, one thing is, is that their ability to blanket landscapes and to create these hot spots of fertility all over them makes those landscapes much more resilient to drought. Does anybody actually ever release termites to, to fix up a landscape? Does that ever happen? Yes. Termites can be used to rejuvenate landscapes. One of the things that I got really excited about was I read some studies that had been done in Australia about using termites to restore landscapes that had been really dramatically mined for bauxite, which is used for aluminum. And when you mine the bauxite from land, you scrape off the first meter or so of land and you put it aside. And then you go down the next two meters and you scrape up all of the this sort of P-shaped bauxite ore. And then you sort of plop the dirt back mm. on a very hard-packed floor. And it's never it's not very good dirt to begin with. It's very fragile soil. So uh, the plan had been in the late... 60s, had been to just put some fertilizer on this land and maybe grow some trees or maybe grow some cows. Um, But it turned out that the land was actually owned by uh, an aboriginal group called the Yongu. It was kind of removed from them by the government, but they insisted that if the land was needed to be restored to the original forest of eucalyptus. What happened was they ended up letting termites take over the landscape. And it turned out that there was sort of a bucket brigade of termites. There were 13 kinds of termites (laughs) came back into this landscape, one or two at a time. So at first there were some little grasses sprouting. There was a special little grass termite. And then as you got more brush, you got more of a brush termite. Then as you got eucalyptus, you got some other termites. And finally they had, uh, after 20 or so years, they had a whole forest regrown. Um, So that was really interesting, and that method has been used in other places. Hmm. So back to global warming. Um, Does You know, you talked about uh, termites, obviously, like being able to restore landscapes. Is that something that could help as more areas become, like, really dry because of global warming? Are termites starting to disappear from those areas? Just give me a sense of, like, are they a indicator at all of what's happening? Can they be helpful? They're everything. They're, <laughs> they can be hurtful as the, as the climate changes. Okay. The more invasive termites spread further, and they're just chewing the heck out mm. of things. Also, the termites themselves are changing their own behavior in response to ours. So in the southeast of the U.S., two types of very invasive termites have started syncing up their reproductive cycle, and they've started hybridizing, and they have become far more aggressive than they were before. So these are the eating house termites. Yes, those are the eating house termites, huge colonies that grow very, very fast. They call them super termites. At the same time, in some places, as land gets farmed, the number of the variety of termites falls. Hmm. So you have fewer helpful termites. Researchers fly planes over places in South Africa. Um, and they have tracked the kind of movement of the termite mounds that as the, 
as the water available in these very dry landscapes changes, the termite mounds themselves seem to be moving into pathways that reflect the changed water. Mm. So the mounds can seem immovable. I mean, they're like, some of them are 15 feet high or or at least 12 feet Mm. high normally. And they're huge. They're massive. It takes, you know, it takes a big piece of heavy equipment to to knock them Mm -hmm. over. But they're slowly falling and being reassembled in ways that reflect these changing water patterns. Do you feel like now, after all this research and all these years spent, like, thinking about and, and talking to scientists about termites, I mean, just give me a sense of how your view of them has changed and how you, you're, what you think about them, like, in relation to us. Personally, termites gave me a whole way of looking at the world that was different than what I had before. Now I see the world as being assembled by tiny parts. Nothing is for granted. When I see a landscape, I think if I could see this like in a termite scale, I would see it all moving because bugs are carrying every grain of sand around me is being removed and and modeled and turned into some sort of useful bit of fertility. It's this kind of it's this mixture of chaos and organization at a very, very tiny scale that sort of really transforms how you look at almost everything. Lisa Marganelli is the author of Underbug, an obsessive tale of termites and technology. Lisa, thank you very much. Thank you. Roboticists are also super interested in termites and how they work as a group. More on that at facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Associate producers Mark Sollinger and Mark Filipino and engineer Doug Sugarts. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.